So how many of you have heard of the MDR? Okay, and for those of you that are not in, uh, in clinical or medical safety, I'm not talking about medical device reporting. I'm talking about the medical device regulation, which is different than the MDD, the medical device directive. Hopefully I got all those acronyms correct. Everybody's nodding their head. So we're gonna go ahead and open up with our first question. So people say that the MDR means tossing out the MDD. Others say that the MDD is still a solid foundation and that strategic updates to a company's quality system and technical files are needed to upgrade to the MDR. At the very top level are the primary differences between, what are the primary differences between the MDD and the MDR? So this is an interesting topic for me and it's one that I get uh, hate mail on LinkedIn anytime I post about it because I am, I'm very passionate that the, the MDD hasn't gone away. It has been replaced by the MDR, but none of the requirements in it are invalid anymore. They didn't take anything out of the MDD. You don't get to stop doing anything that you were doing under the MDD, but now you have to add to it. So it's above and beyond what you were already doing. And if you layer in what you were already doing under the MDD with things that you were doing in your quality system for ISO 13485 and risk management with ISO 14971, I'm, I'm confident that you're going to be closer than, than you would think once you get started down the process. Particularly because a lot of the areas that, where the gaps do exist, where it looks like things are truly brand new, a lot of those requirements were in supposed voluntary guidance documents in MedDev standards prior to the regulation being drafted. And now very similar requirements are no longer voluntary, they're regulation. Um, so a lot of companies that, that were already voluntarily complying with these things are gonna be much farther down that compliance process and it's not gonna be a huge hurdle for them. So I take a, a little bit of different context. Everything was said is, is exactly correct. Correct. The thing you have to think about when you look at the MDR is is you have to look at it over your entire book of business, not not just from a regulatory perspective. But how many of you have sat in companies have said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to develop this product and then I'm going to take it to Europe and see market and I'm going to sell it next week." Yeah. We, we, we've we've all been there. I mean, in fact, I've been one of those marketers that have said, "Let's go do that." If you think about how that goes, you send the product over to Europe and you start trying to sell. Well, no one wants to buy it. Well, why? Well, probably because it's not reimbursed. Probably because there's no clinical data at all to be able to convince a physician to, to uh, use this in, in a human being. Uh, and uh, sales don't, don't, don't go very well. And I think you know, sometimes what companies get really caught up on, you know, the act of the, the MDR, get concerned about that, but really the bigger question is, are we a company that has a quality system? Are we a company that, that's gonna generate, generate data to support regulatory, to support commercialization, to support reimbursement. If you're not going to do that, it's kind of getting harder and harder in, in our in our uh, healthcare system, both in the U.S., Europe, and other parts of the world, to, to participate. If you the old days of just you know creating a product in your garage and selling it six weeks later in Europe, those days are kind of kind of over. <laughs> and to that point, I saw a physician speaking. Um, I think it was to our FDA Congress or, or FDA where they said very, something very similar, like we have a disconnect where the clinical expectations of a physician in practice needs a certain amount of data that the FDA isn't asking for to clear a device. And so I think that that's a little bit of the paradigm that the European Union is trying to close with the MDR. 
Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I also think about too is you know, very commonly in companies as well is you know, there'll be an MBO that says, get the product approved. Well, get the product approved is, is an important step, but it's not the final step. And you know, what I like about the MDR is, is we get closer to more of a, an FDA mindset or a PMDA mindset around what is needed to commercialize. So that every party in the organization, the product development, all the way through quality system, regulatory, commercial, so forth, is thinking about the end in mind. The end in mind is making sure that you have a, a high quality product with high quality data and, and built in a, in, a, in a quality, repeatable manufacturing system. That, if you do that, you've got a good product, and by the way, you can get to the MBR. Either of you like to explain the difference between a 510K product and what that 510K product will now be required? I know that the 510K is an FDA term, and we're talking about the EU, but go, just go with me with, with this for a second, right? Because most people create that V2 product, they sell it in the US, and they sell it in the EU. Come May 2020, what's the big difference that we're going to see about that? Would you like to go into detail? Um, so the big difference is going to be the, the expectation of access to the clinical data. So right now in Europe, everybody has to put together what's called a clinical evaluation report which is primarily a literature review and a comparison of the technological characteristics between your product and other products on the market. And, and the trend is, the push has already been, well, if your product isn't, we're not talking about substantially equivalent like we're talk, we talk about in the FDA. If it's not identical, identical, you have to have extensive both uh, benchtop and clinical data to support any any maybe just minor differences uh, in in your your product technology. So that is going to be, I think, uh, you know, we we mentioned this. I think for the class three devices, the MDR isn't going to be as, as huge of an impact because those companies were already used to extensive clinical data. But for the class two A and two B, and maybe even some ones that have been reclassified to be evaluated by notified bodies, the whole clinical paradigm is going to shift. And so now for long-standing products that might have been on the market for 40 years, it's a very real possibility that the, the notified body might ask for, where's your clinical study? And you've been marketing with safe post-market surveillance history for 40 years. I mean, what are you going to do? Well, I, I think for the people in this room, that's, that's particularly interesting. Because and the fact of the matter is, I mean, to your point, is, I mean, class three devices, look, I mean, you know, the, the, the standard for an implantable is, is around the world is very high. And, and I, think, I don't think anyone wants to put a device in a human body without good, good data on a quality system. If we thought about in the ophthalmology world, I mean, the kinds of devices that are probably most impacted are things like the, the 1,000 um, surgical, surgical blade that's, you know, that's being used in the European markets. If I was sitting in the shoes of a, of a large, of a large um, uh, conglomerate, you know, like an Alcon or Johnson & Johnson, I look at this as, as a win because now you're on the same, you force the little fly-by-night companies to be in the same level playing field. I mean, because a, a large company doesn't have a, a quality system for class one and a quality for class three. It's, it's a quality system, right? It's, it's the companies that, you know, that uh, don't play by the rules uh, that have, that have uh, you know, in Europe been able to come in and, and be able to, to do something without regulation. So again, if I look at the MDR from my side, I look at it as a win in the sense of finally there's, there's a level playing field across medical devices through Europe, and not me or any one of us in the room are not being penalized for playing by, playing by the higher standard. And I think that makes sense if you're well-established, yep. right? But if you're a startup, you're not anywhere near being able to submit under the MDD. What is the impact? 
So I push back and say, well, why Europe? I mean, there's always been this notion of, I have to go to Europe first, why? Because it's easy. I mean, I mean that's, if you ask any, most people that have gone to Europe first, it's usually one of two reasons. One is to get early clinical experience. You know, so basically do a pseudo trial, uh, you know, these are the ethereum you mark, or two, get early revenue. And, and you know, if you're a startup and you're trying to make decisions where, where will I go, now the bar is higher in Europe. Maybe you don't go to Europe. Maybe you sit down, you continue down your US FDA, FDA process. Because I'm, I'm not sure the gain in Europe is, is there anymore relative if you're, if you're a novel startup and you have limited capital you know, resources. And again, in the old days, you just say, yeah, just, you know, if I can make a million or two in Europe, uh, it's worth the investment. may not be anymore. Oh, I just have a question. Um, somebody mentioned something about you have to own your clinical data. Yes. Can you elaborate? What do you mean by that? So in that, that kind of uh, substantial equivalence CER comparison process we talked about, um, there is some data that is publicly available. There are maybe redacted 510Ks. There's lots of clinical literature that may reference your device. It may reference somebody else's device. It may reference the procedure in general. But those are, are again, publicly available. But, but there is actual test data on that other device that you are discussing that that company owns that's proprietary. It may be actual biocompatibility uh, test reports or material specifications. If Unless you have access to that real data via contract with that company, and how are you gonna get your competitor to give you access to their the data that where they got their product cleared? That at the European Union notified bodies aren't going to recognize your clinical evaluation methodology. So mm -hmm. on, on the point of startups, I saw some data presented by the FDA at a conference. They consider a large company as one that has a hundred employees or more. Mm -hmm. And I want to say 80% of the companies with a device registration and listing with the FDA have less than a hundred people. And, and so if you think about that, and then you look, start looking at those segments, companies that are 500 and over are 2% of what is registered with the FDA. And so you start thinking about um, the what this could mean for a global perspective and the amount of companies that, that are not going to be able to afford to, to go to market in Europe. It, it's really quite large in scale, yeah. possibly. I mean, and that brings up a good, I mean, a really good debate because, in the sense, in some regard, you you, you argue, you know, do we need? I mean, because it really, it, it's going to affect the class one and class two devices the most. If that's the case, more likely than not, it's probably going to be the the, the the thousandth, you know, monofocal IOL on, on the European market. Do we need another one, one of those? And more importantly, those are companies that are, that are going to struggle to get venture backing as it, as it is. I mean, so it really, to me, it shifts the paradigm of the startups to be make sure you're, you're novel. If you're not novel, you. you, you Probably don't have a lot of room to enter. enter you know, certainly, certainly go to Europe as, as an example. So I think incremental improvements. If that's what all your product does is making, you know, minor progression on a current um, method of treatment or disease state, that that doesn't make sense to go to Europe anymore. It might have been in the past a good business model, but now the cost to do that, um, because even that they're going to say is novel, even yep. though it might be incremental. You're, if you're going to be novel, you really need to make some, some significant and drastic improvement to the overall um, state of, of care. Absolutely. So for the last few minutes, we've been talking about startups, but 
I do want to note that, uh, and I won't mention the two companies, but two of the top biomedical companies in the world have already notified the EU that they'll be redacting 20% of their existing product lines, uh, and they will not be moving forward with registering them with the MDR. Good. And so, those are people that technically have the money to do so, but the business case for those particular products doesn't support marketing there. Mm -hmm. So depending on your product line, it could be 1.5 million to meet the new regulation. Is that worth it on an existing product line, or do you want to spend that money on new, more novel technology? And these two companies have decided they're going to spend their money elsewhere. So hopefully, the the EU won't be suffering from lack of medical care. Hopefully, it's the Me Too segment and not the novel segment. Oh, and remember, I mean, the 80% the they are willing to do that with, those are products that are novel that they can actually get a price premium for. So I guess my point is, it, it all interconnects. Like, you can't look at the MDR by itself, right? Good products create good value. Good value creates premium pricing. Premium pricing creates you know, good businesses. Like, so I, I think sometimes we get so scared by the, the concept of the MDR. The MDR is no different than we talk about in, in reimbursement land, as an example, and trying to have evidence to support you know, to support products. It's no different than trying to talk about how do you get clinical adoption from physicians. We need evidence. It all connects. So let's do a quick, like, two-minute segue and give us a quick explanation on market access. Because I think some of us here in the room know a lot about what it takes to get our product across the line and approved. But then it normally gets hand over, and all we know is, hey, we're not we're not releasing for another nine months, so we're not releasing until this other study happens. And nobody explains why. Would you would you take two minutes and explain why real quick? Yeah, there's a small problem in our healthcare system around the world. It costs money, uh, and <coughs> governments around the world are broke, and they have to make this rational decision every day to spend their healthcare money. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many things in the healthcare system have been in for a long time. Governments are very poor at taking old things out and replacing new things. So with that, they, they have a limited amount of money every year, whether you're in France or U US or Japan or wherever, to invest in, in, in new and novel technologies. Uh, and so they have to make trade-off decisions every single day. And they make those decisions based upon cost-effectiveness. And the entire concept of health economics is, is, a, is a model to try to figure out what, what I should and should not invest in. And so why that applies to the MDR is everything goes back to evidence. No evidence, no MDR, no, no, no reimbursement, no clinical adoption. And, and I think, again, th th that's where I think it all interconnects is we're talking about evidence and, and quality systems. And, and, and that applies across the entire, uh, the entire business, frankly. So how does the post-market surveillance and post-market clinical follow-up study requirements changed under the MDR, given that traditionally for Me Too, many product companies have not needed to own their clinical data now with the MDR, they will need full access. So we've kind of gone over that a little bit, but, but what kind of changes do you foresee in the clinical trial structure and post-market studies, if any? Well, this is kind of where I want to go on a little bit of a, a tangent about how state of the art is defined. So I'm just going to throw that term out to you. Like a couple of ideas, what does state of the art mean to you? Exactly. So we got leading edge, perfection class, new and improved. You, 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 you naturally think something novel, something advanced. What if I throw out standard of care? What if I told you that regulation regulators who are approving the new devices think standard of care and state of the art could possibly be the, the same thing? 
because now you have a new paradigm. You have to move not only your novel technology, what is novel about it, you also are now changing the standard of care with state of the art. So standard of care is not necessarily synonymous with state of the art. This new product that you're bringing in is what you are, what you are mentally thinking of is state of the art. But the regulations say you have to de demonstrate that your product is state of the art. But to them, that doesn't mean how you just defined it. It means that you meet current standard of care and current recognized or harmonized product performance standards that the governments have already recognized is a minimum entry for safety, for, to demonstrate safety for your particular product. So I, I think that the, the understanding of those concepts, it seems nuanced, but when you're making a clinical argument and you're putting your clinical data plan together, it makes a very big difference as to the scope of what you're gonna have to prove in your, your clinical studies. And it's not just enough anymore to beat standard of care. Like I was giving this example to somebody um, that, that's familiar with the anti-VEGF treatments right now, is that those involve an injection of shots in your eyeball like every month or so. I don't know about you, I don't, I don't want a shot in my eyeball ever, much less <laughs> once a month. The FDA has defined that as standard of care for wet macular degeneration. There's a technology that I'm working on that is, delivers radiation to the back of the eye and the FDA has defined that as a high risk technology mm -hmm. because they say, well, you could be blind for that. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so just the whole risk paradigm of where the FDA is at and understanding standard of care and state of the art is not where the practitioners are at in understanding those two concepts. And how often do you find clients that they'll say to you, particularly as they come to the MDR, they say to you, well, you know, standard of care is, is the, the 510K predicate that's been around for 50 years. Because mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's been my experience. Oh, yeah, you know, we'll go back and say, what's the predicate device? And, you know, and we'll, we'll assume that applies for Europe. But it, it, I mean, standard of care changes over time, right? Yep. I mean, you know, what, what was standard of care 50 years ago? I hope is not standard of care today. Exactly, and FDA is even calling people out on that now, and they've published formal um, announcements and memos that they really don't want companies to pick um, technologies that are more than 10 years old yeah. because they don't feel like antiquated predicates really reflect state of the art, and you have to have a good reason for picking an older predicate now. So even the FDA is, is moving, trying to move away. So would you also consider uh, in your state-of-the-art discussion your product compared to other products and also alternative treatments? Yes. So that whole model is of not just other products that you're comp competing against, but other treatments. Um, the whole healthcare landscape has to be um, discussed in your clinical evaluation. And then also it's moving to discussions about benefit risk, not risk benefit and that's a very different way to perceive your your technologies and what you have to offer 2012 was the first time that they came out with the ifu no longer counts as a risk reduction um, risk mitigator mm -hmm. everybody was rapidly scrambling trying to figure out how to comply and the compliance was you had to have training for the first time we were going to document 
the training was going to be a risk mitigator. And then the early onset of human factors started to come out and you had to actually run a human factor study and validate that your training was effective. The new change with the new 14971 is that the old one only had to be done for critical, for critical risk, risks that were very, very high. Big change that you have to now do is everything requires that. Every single hazard that you have for your product requires this analysis, not just those that are in the yellow. Doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you have an ophthalmic console whose risk analysis document is 365 pages long, and you have some 400 hazardous elements that you have to deal with, that's a lot of work. If you have a small ophthalmic implant, you might have 36 items, it's not that bad. So it depends on, on how big of a product you have, how big of a project. That's gonna determine how much work and effort is gonna have to go into doing this analysis to chime in. You always know. need a clinician to chime in and, and, and sign off on it because they asked for the CV of the clinician that looked at it. So I'll let you go and then I've got it. Yeah, I've got kind of a flipping review on that. I mean, look, I mean, start where you, where you went with. I mean, surprise, surprise, we have to train people how to use our product. Surprise, surprise, we have to eventually talk to our doctors about hazards about our product. I mean, everything, everything you've gone through are all common sense. They're scary, but they're common sense. They're things that whether as a, from a regulatory standpoint might be a big leap forward. These are things that are being asked every single day by, by, by sales individuals all around the world, by doctors or, or, or saying, what about this risk? What, what about that? You probably need that answer before you commercialize. So again, one of, one of the ways I look at this is everything that the MDR is asking for actually makes my life as a marketer actually easier. So even though it slows down the, the product approval process, it actually makes my life a lot easier because most of the questions I got to answer are probably already answered in pre-market because of the MDR. So what I hear you saying, Greg, is that uh, if I do my job correctly, we'll be able to hand you a package to allow you to get not only not only get the company clearance for the product, but also allow you to gain markets. I have a question. It sounds like you're saying if you do all these clinical studies, you're probably going to do them in one country, maybe two. Is all of Europe for the MDR going to accept that? So are we doing away now with the new MDR? We don't have to go to country-specific studies, or what, what's that starting to look like? Well, that's a great question. I think everybody's still waiting on that, that answer for how all those cards are going to fall out. We're still in this um, transition period where, where nobody, not the competent authorities or the notified bodies, really know how a lot of these details are going to shake out yet. So. It, it is kind of what it is. But if I could back up just a minute, because his 14971 example is the perfect example of what I'm saying about the difference between the MDD and the MDR. Because when they made those changes, they added onto what was called Annex Z, which is at the back of every European harmonized standard that basically shows the correlation between that standard and the medical device directive. So when they made that change, they changed, they didn't change the standard, they changed Annex Z to show where 14971 in the mind of the regulators did not fulfill the requirements of the medical device directive. And that's where they added in all of those requirements. 
and they published it as effective immediately and here's the reason why because they said this is what we meant all along in the medical device directive and you as an industry have been interpreting it incorrectly so we are now clarifying it for you and because we meant it all along it's effective immediately and that sent industry sprawling I mean this was like you said 2012 um, so so again when I say that yeah are there more requirements in the MDR yes but they're clarifying the regulators are clarifying these are things we expected all along and you weren't doing them to the way we intended for them to be done so now we're writing them into official regulation yeah i was actually in a debate with an auditor and their response to me regarding training was well you have your human factors validation to back up your training was, was was shown to be effective, correct? So the old way was we invite three people over, we have a fantastic lunch, they play with the toys, they say the toys are fantastic, <laughs> I'll write you a memo, sign it at the bottom, and we're good. Those are the old days. The new days, if you're if you're in America, it's fifteen surgeons are fifteen users. So if you have a if you have a console that requires a scrub tech circulator, whatever the case may be, you now need 15 nurses in your study. You need 15 surgeons in your study. Um, the EU does not define the amount of, of surgeons or nurses, but it's required. You have to document the training. You have to take a minimum one hour break. You have a practical exam. You have a hands-on uh, practical exam where they have to demonstrate the ability to perform all the various tasks. You have an interview. And the whole time you have somebody marking down what they did right, what they did wrong, there's a script. It's a full-blown protocol. Uh, it's not a clinical trial. It's a human factors usability validation. And that's what's expected that you've done to demonstrate that your training has been validated. For If you're, if you're an engineer, this is probably freaking you out a little bit. If you're not an engineer, you're like, oh, cool, so that's what they're doing. <laughs> it, it's, it's actually an interesting debate I mean, you need to think about it because I mean from, from my side again and, and forgive me because I'm, I'm I'm looking at it from purely the commercial side I only want trained surgeons to use my product because if they're not trained they're going to bad outcomes I can't sell products when they have bad outcomes and so I, I'd probably want to know that my training process is validated I mean so part of what we're talking about tonight even though it's the MDR a lot of it's common sense and it's putting, putting together all the pieces you need to put together when you're putting product into the human body and, and, and trying to solve and change the practice of medicine. I mean, these are, you probably need some evidence, you probably need to train your doctor. I mean, these are, these are things that if a rational person would step back and say, okay, yeah, it makes sense. You know, where, where a lot of my um, lower risk clients are struggling is like the ones that have, you know, Me Too products that have been making, you know, yep. external wound drains or nasal cannulas yep. or something, you know, for 40 years. What, what, what's the nasal cannula gonna do for innovation? You know, and, and then you're gonna really do a, first off, clinical literature is not gonna even talk about a nasal cannula. And then if you did a study, what's the, like, did, did they get air? Did they die from asphyxiation? Like, what, and then when, when you guys talk about all the, more, the devices that are gonna be removed from market, it might be these lower class Me Too, but that are essential to 
almost all healthcare procedures. And I guess you know the MDR. That, that's that's the problem. The MDR is if if you did, did it if you did it proactively and said I'm only going to do this on on new novel devices, and it raises the playing the playing field for what you know what is novel and where and where investment should be going in our healthcare system. But then you, you have the problem of do you run the risk of, of, of losing access to, you know, mm -hmm. to important devices that, that have been in the system for a long time. I mean, so I think that's, yep. the, that's the hard balance of the MDR. And then if people do do what it takes to bring those types of devices, what have you done to the cost of health care? What have you done to the cost of the nasal cannula that was like, you know, a couple of dollars? Yep. I had a question earlier when you said this, when you talked about you know simple class one, class two devices that have been on the market for 20, 30, 40 years. That doesn't pass a test of common sense. I mean, when they want clinical data on a nasal cannula, can't they look back on 30 years of safety data? I mean, seriously, they're not gonna, somebody's gotta come to their senses on that. That just doesn't make sense. I 100% agree with you. I've been having this debate with myself in my mind. Um, and then, have, are you guys familiar with what happened with the surgical staples in the U.S.? I don't, I don't have all the details, and I should have looked this up because I just thought of it last night at 2 a.m. Um, but, but surgical staples, that's something that has been on the market for a couple of decades. You know, it's yep. kind of been... I think the FDA even quit requiring a 510K form at one point in time. And all of a sudden we have lots of adverse events about surgical staples and the FDA has a huge initiative about surgical staples. So here is a supposedly lower risk, long-term device on, and this isn't even in Europe, this is on the US market. And so then it really made me sit back and say, okay, uh, it's a surgical staple that's still not the same as a nasal cannula but it's something that somebody had kind of mentally written off as no longer new, novel, or present risk. So I can only think that it's, it's stuff like that that, that has led to this crazy place. So, but, but as I remember, correct me if I'm not wrong, but the, the MDR negotiation, you started with, with the breast implant scan, didn't it? Yeah. That's another fun fact that I get hate mail on LinkedIn about. Um, <laughs> Technically, I have been corrected more than one time on this, the MDR was already on the table in committee in discussions, not, not full out draft. At, and PIP, which is the company that made the breast implants that burst in women all over the world, um, was happening shortly thereafter. Right. So you've got this perfect storm of events happening in Europe. MDR may have languished or may have gotten heavily uh, redacted had this very serious and extensive adverse event situation in Europe not have happened. And the reason it was so serious is because Europe as a whole is not very litigious, but when this happened, people were all of a sudden holding the governments accountable. The notified body who had cleared the device got sued. I mean, it was a major legal upheaval and regulatory upheaval because then the people are saying, what are you doing to keep us safe? So, so then the answer, well, we're, we, we were already talking about MDR, not work now, and now here it comes. So the, the other tidbit, right, fact about that case was that uh, notified body comes in, they survey everything, they see the line, they see the people, they see the SOPs, they see the training, 
They see the raw goods. They see the source of the raw goods. Everything is to code. Everything is legit. As described in their technical dossier. But as soon as the regulators leave, they change the line. They are no longer using biomedical grade silicone. They're using industrial grade silicone. And the heavy corner cutting starts occurring. So when the adverse events start happening and somebody goes back in, they discover somebody is just outright breaking the law. This isn't a biomedical company who put out a product that could have been better. This is flat out circumvention of doing right to your fellow human being. They had falsified test documentation. They had falsified product numbers. You know, we're not talking about just brought a different Gaylord of resin. I mean, it was a very extensive fake documentation that they had created in the whole nine yards. And to me, you can't legislate morality or integrity. And so if the European Union thought MDR was going to be a solution to the type of things that went wrong in PIP, they're just going to create if people were predisposed to do that, now there's even more documentation to be falsified or lied about. And as I remember, the, 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 the pender, there are not criminal penalties in Europe for adulteration like there are in the United States. So even on an enforcement standpoint in, in, in the United States, if, if that were to happen here, there are criminal penalties for, you know, for, for that kind of behavior. In the European Union, as of today, they don't exist. So what we have is an MDR that tries to address a problem that, that actually doesn't really address the problem you're, that you're describing. 